Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think those moments are remarkable. We are your hosts, Christian and Alex Giebert. Today's moment comes from the motet Dir Geist hilft unsere Schwachheit auf. On this week after the celebration of Pentecost, we bring to you this motet focusing on the theme of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes to help our weakness. The Spirit pleads for us. The Spirit searches our hearts. These are all themes from the Romans text that Bach sets here. This music was written for a funeral. We know this for sure. And to our modern ears, and maybe even to the ears of the people who heard it then. I'm not sure that the quality of this music sounds like funeral to me, does it, to you, Christian? Well, it doesn't sound as funereal as what we're going to do next week. Let's, let's just say that. Yeah. This motet was written for the funeral of Professor Ernesti, who was a professor at the Leipzig University and director of the Thomas Schule. And just as a side note, this is not the same Ernesti with whom Bach had a famous feud about a certain singer being in his choir. It's a whole, it's a whole thing we'll get into another time. But Bach does this here with this text. He gets this text, he does what Bach does, which is that he writes to the text. And this text requires this sort of lively dance. Even though it's for a funeral, Bach was writing the text first, and the occasion didn't factor into the, into the compositional decision-making here. The Spirit helps in our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself makes intercession for us, with groanings which cannot be uttered. Bach, never satisfied with simplicity, decides to write this in a double choir scoring here. And what that means is we get two full choirs, soprano, alto, tenor, bass, and then soprano, alto, tenor, bass. It's not an eight-part choir. The distinction is made and is seen on the video if you watch this in the link in our description. There's a choir on the left with four parts. There's a choir on the right with four parts. <laughs> What makes this even more easy to see as you watch it, and then if you listen for it, you can, you can also hear this, is that one of the choirs is supported by strings and the other is supported by woodwinds. Specifically, the first choir is supported by violins, viola, and cello on the soprano alto, tenor, and bass. And then choir two is oboe one, oboe two, and then English horn, or the Baroque version of an English horn, basically, and bassoon over there, they just double the vocal parts. Then the other thing happening is the continual part, which is standard for the music practice of the day. And that's the bass part covered by usually a violon, which is like a double bass of the time. 
and whatever continuo keyboard instrument, probably a small organ. What Bach does here is he has that bass continuo line, basically doubling whatever the bass is doing in either choir. Whoever's got the bass line in either choir, Bach gives that to the continuo as well. That organist would have been expected to play chords, the harmonic structure above. So despite all the other complexity of the choir parts, there's still even more going on, the continuo parts. And you can hear a harpsichord also being played on this recording too. We should not brush past the staggering complexity of the scoring of this work. At the very, very beginning, you hear choir one begin. Then you hear choir two enter two bars later. And then choir two, you know, they just switch off at the beginning, but then suddenly they're together. And then he has them do these little musical conversations, although a lot of times one of the voices, like sometimes it's the soprano, from one choir will still trail, trail on while the, uh, the other choir is like fully entering. And that happens right away. And then for much of this piece, he's got both choirs going together in true eight-part harmony. And it's like this, whichever of the two choirs has the like, true low foundational bass part, he doubles that bass part in the continuo, but the other choir still does have a soprano, alto, tenor, and bass. They're just all doing different things. Typically, at that point, that particular bass part is a little higher. So you do have eight separate written out parts, as well as the harmonic filling in that the continuo player is expected to do. I think it's worth saying at this point, Alex, that the tradition of writing something for two choirs that are antiphonal is actually pretty old by the time we get to Bach. We see it in composers one, two, three generations before him and more. But what is really interesting, like that seems anachronistic, but is totally true, is that the idea of an instrumental bass line that covers the bottom of whatever is the lowest at the time and some harmony above is a newer concept than using a double choir or triple choir or whatever choral forces because it's already over a hundred years old now at this point that there could be a huge double choir or triple choir but that predates the use of figured bass even so composers like Monteverdi and after Monteverdi coming into the 1600s now had an opportunity to support the voices with written out parts otherwise in times past they might have just played anyway we think that that's what happened with a late renaissance music that instrumentalists would double the voice parts. Sure. So this is actually kind of in a nice older style in that respect. But as you mentioned, Alex, there are things about the scoring that are Bach's signature spin. And the one that jumps out to me the most is not that the bass is always covered, the bass line, the continuo always covers whatever is happening in the bass one or bass two part, but that the doubled instruments that are prescribed for each choir are prescribed at all and that they are different that one of them is a string yes. choir and the other is like a double reed choir. That's really cool. I, that You don't really see that anywhere else. You don't, and it's the only motet where it's like that, and we have it in Bach's own hand, his own handwritten parts for these orchestral doublings. So we know that was done, or at least it was intended, and it probably was done. And the really cool thing about that is that it 
informs the rest of Bach's choral work. There are only six extant motets in the Bach oeuvre. Like, that's it. I mean, it's that's, kind of crazy because he wrote so much vocal music. That's unbelievable. But it, it, it just doesn't seem... Yeah. Until you hear that number, it just doesn't seem right. It just seems like the scope of them is big. I just would assume, like, if I had to guess before I knew that number, Alex, I would have said 10 or 15. You know, I just... Right. Because I just don't... They're all... They're also... Because they're also different. And they all have such a different structure and scope and everything. Right. And of those six, this is the only one that has the instrumental parts written out like this. Hmm. But it's still a pretty good guess that this would have been done with the other motets as well. Mm Because instrumental doubling, the support of instrumental parts, was part and parcel of this time period. And it was also characterized in the place, like that was a German tradition. So it's a little less common for them to have their own music be this choir-only stuff. Now, in in church services, Bach didn't only program his own music, you know. I mean, he had a lot of music to program for the choir to sing in church that has a lot to do with how the order of service needed to be. It was very particular. It had to be a certain way, depending on the Sunday. And usually there would need to be a motet, and he would just use old ones. And this is, Hmm. scholars think this is why he didn't write that many of these choral motets, because even though he had tons of cantatas that he wrote, that was the big thing to do, is to write the cantata for the Sunday, not so much a motet. And that's why the motets we do have are basically for special occasions, like this funeral one here. Mm-hmm. So even so, there's some of his best work, and we've looked at Jesu Meine Freude before, which is an absolute choral masterwork. And if you ever get a chance to hear any of these motets performed, I mean, we also looked at Kom Jesu Kom, which was another double choir. And we have yet to look at, but we should at some point, Zingit dem Herrn, which is an amazing very complicated yeah. double choir thing. Not that this isn't, <laughs> this one isn't. But I guess all this is to say is what's cool about this one is those instrumental written out parts by Bach because it really it really gives us the, the flavor of what it would have been like. You've got your Baroque string orchestra helping out one group and you've got your woodwinds helping out the other and that will serve to distinguish the tone between the two groups because otherwise you've just got voices and voices and regardless of vocal tone, it's going to sound pretty similar and it does as you can hear as soon as you, like everybody's voice sounds different, right? Everybody has a different timbre of their voice. However, anytime you add voices and start to have a larger, larger group, the homogeny just increases, right? And until you get to the point where it just sounds like a choir. I think tone production is a big deal, but at a certain point, the certain timbres go away, right? So having these orchestral sub orchestras, these little, these little small chamber groups, um, although it wouldn't have been called a chamber group, because that was basically reserved for like secular music, that terminology back then. So it's different than what we think of today. But that little orchestra on either side would have served to really help differentiate the sound of these two separate choral units. I love that he was thinking timbrely and texturally. And I think we've said recently, sometimes we don't think of Bach as the texture composer or the timbre composer. Yeah. Definitely, though he was. Right. And this is great evidence. The fact that he knew that... He wasn't just going to have a double choir thing here. He was going to have a double choir thing here where they actually were made to sound different by the orchestration. Right. So we're coming up to my favorite moment of this motet. It's a pretty short motet. Only two movements, or you could, I suppose you could say it's three or four, depending on how you like split it out, but a lot of them kind of segue. It's really just one opening 
movement in three parts and then a closing chorale, which is pretty short. But this middle part is the part that I love. It suddenly goes into a different time signature, but listening to it the first time you hear it, it really throws you. You don't really know what it is until you've gotten your bearings. And this is the moment here. When we get to the text, Zondern der Geist, Zobst, etc., etc., this is the spirit itself pleads for us, this kind of thing. And when you get to that point, it goes into 4-4 time, but you wouldn't know it by hearing it because it's, it's really jumpy. And what that is, is it has to do with the syncopations that are happening. Then he's starting to add the other choir. Now we're getting two choirs fully here. It's just a fugal thing, right? It just jumps in. This section is very short. And right near the end of it, before we get into the third section, A really tremendous syncopation thing happens in the first soprano part in choir one. It's at the top of the texture so you can hear it really well. Listen for that. It's pretty crazy. The way that those notes are just off the beat, I mean, that's the syncopation, right? That's what it is. It's just notes played a half beat early, basically. Typically is what that is. But there's a lot of it going on before that, but he comes into a concluding cadence there. So he's ramping it up and he's doing more and more of these little syncopations during the section until you get to that concluding cadence. And about four bars before it, it goes to the craziest stuff. Bach likes throwing the crazy stuff at us at a dramatic moment, which is usually before a cadence. And you can always see this in his cantata arias. It's, it's that B section before we return to the A section again. It's that end of that B section where he goes really wild. And when he goes into a cadence, and then especially on those da capo arias where it goes right back to the A section, he likes to do that there. And even though this one is not that same kind of format, he is doing that thing he likes to do, which is to make it as wild as he can right before a cadence that precedes a new section of music. And when you get to that new section, it becomes a lot more stable if you listen there. Marked a la breve, which is just like a common time sort of marking. This next section, you can hear how the the beats are a lot more steady. The half note gets the beat, and this is just a, it's a little bit more antiquated in style in this section right here. You can kind of hear that. And it's always the text with Bach, right? Because here, when you get to the steady section, that's when we get to the steady text. The text being about spirit making intercession for the saints according to the will of God. 
In the Lutheran theology, the Spirit is what grants humans faith. Faith is a gift from God that comes to us through the Spirit. So you get this sort of reassuring, steady music painting that picture. And the contrast from before is very pronounced because the words of the moment you were talking about, Alex, we come out of that triple meter section into the next section with the word but, but the spirit, and so on. And so that's where Bach creates the first division in the music. We go into four beats per measure. But the spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. But in the German, the last word of the sentence is groanings. Hmm. And it is a word that we have heard before on this podcast mm. because it's, it's a, a word that one. yeah it's a sigh it's a word that Bach always sets interestingly he always centers in on that word Zeufzen sighs or groanings and the the description is of the Holy Spirit making intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered mm. I love that So it's so evocative. And that's that's the word that is sung during my moment, during those crazy syncopations, right? It's all those fluttering anxieties of the heart, right? And also a little before with a few pages before that when we have bottom, bottom, bottom. And that's also mm, yeah. groaning. But also maybe this is the spirit's groaning on behalf of us because of something that we can't even express with our own words. And in this case, it's the Holy Spirit's job of speaking on our behalf when we can't find the words, which is another kind of a Pentecost theme because the Spirit came down on Pentecost and the story goes that the people could then speak in different languages or the people could then understand each other who spoke in different languages originally. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting verse from Romans. That's Romans 8, 26. And it's not, I don't think it's that clear theologically what that means, but it talks about how the Spirit, we don't know what we should pray for. We, sh we know not what we should pray for, right? But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. That's from the King James Version. So that idea from Pentecost about the, the languages, right? And the language that we can't... There's some things which can't be put into any language, things that only the Spirit would be able to intercede for us about. And now, here is that Zeufzen moment from this motet. If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of this piece, please see the link in the episode description to see their performance by the Netherlands Bach Society. Do you want to hear our episodes as they are released? Find us on your podcast app on your phone 
and hit subscribe. You can also listen to us on YouTube. Our episodes come out there as well, and I know that some of you do that. Or Spotify, Pandora, anywhere you can find podcasts. Okay, Christian, what's up for next week? Next week, we return to Gotteszeit, is the allerbeste Zeit, also called Arctus Tragicus, a masterwork of an early Bach cantata that we explored the instrumental introduction of way back at the beginning of the first year of this podcast. But this time, we will look at the central moment of the entire work. One of the great moments of Bach. All-time great moments. And if you know the piece and the recording, you know what we're going to talk about. Otherwise, you don't. (laughs) (laughs) Either way, (laughs) until next time, (laughs) enjoy those moments.